This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Sky-high percentages of Americans just assume that elected officials are in it for themselves, and that makes it very difficult to have a representative democracy if, mm-hmm. <laughs> if the folks representing people are assumed by their constituencies to not even be interested in serving them. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, Russell Moore and I talk to Michael Ware about chaos in the House of Representatives. Then, Sissy Goff and Nicole Martin join us to talk about kids and mental health. Finally, Bob Smitana stops by to talk to Nicole and I about whether or not religion makes us happy. Before we begin today, I wanted to let you know about something that's going to start next week, next Tuesday, actually. We're going to begin ongoing special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Those episodes will drop every Tuesday in our regular show, which will continue to cover a variety of topics. We'll be dropping on Fridays as usual. So keep an eye out Tuesday morning for special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. All right, on with the show. Welcome back. This segment, I don't even really know what to say because this uh, situation is so fast moving. It may well be completely different by the time you hear this, just as of the last half hour or so when we're recording right now, the House of Representatives has imploded again. Jim Jordan, of course, losing Two votes for Speaker of the House. The proposal looked like it was going to be Patrick McHenry from North Carolina being empowered as a Speaker pro tem to actually act as Speaker, so legislation could be passed. That is, we are told, dead now after a really contentious Republican conference meeting that included Kevin McCarthy reportedly screaming at Matt Gates. And then when former Speaker McCarthy was asked about that afterward, he said, I think everybody in America would like to scream at Matt Gates." So that wasn't a denial. So Mike Cosper and I are really glad to have Michael Ware, who is with us today. And Bulletin listeners are familiar with Michael. This is not his first time on this show. Michael has a new book coming out early next year. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, January 23rd. You'll want to look for that. Guys, it's hard to look at this in the house and not see it as some sort of Monty Python skit and wonder what is going on here. And I immediately start to think, what are the ways that this kind of dysfunction is being repeated in the church? Because one of the problems, as as many commentators are saying as they're looking at it, is there's not a Republican Party in the House. There are actually two Republican parties in the House, and they cannot get together on anything. Michael Ware, when you look at this train wreck, what do you think? So the title of my book is The Spirit of Our Politics, and I have a hard time not going to a spiritual analysis when, when I look at this. 
I think Senator Mitt Romney's comments were pretty poignant. I don't know if you all saw, you know, he said, you know, the problem is that we have too many people going to D.C. not to do work, but to get attention. So I will say my take on this has been contrary to quite a few folks, which is I was really concerned when Democrats decided not to put any votes toward McCarthy because I thought it was a big risk. I thought the rhetoric that came out that, well, it's not Democrats' responsibility to save Republicans. Well, that's right. But it is Democrats' responsibility to contribute to solving America's problems. And this is now America's problem. This is not something that's contained to intra-party Republican turmoil. We don't have a Speaker of the House going on two weeks now. And so I think there's dysfunction. While the world's on fire. Exactly. While the world's on fire, I think there's dysfunction all around. I think Democrats will be vindicated at least as a matter of political strategy, if not morally, if for instance, McHenry or someone that seems to be more favorable or easy to work with than McCarthy. But the fact that Jim Jordan got so close, much closer than many people expected from a Democratic perspective, suggests just how ripe the opportunity is for this to fall off the rails in a way that goes against even Democrats' policy interests, not to mention, you know, in a way that harms the country. Just one more point to your church analogy. I see it too. I see the danger both of hardliners that are willing to sort of impose a very individualistic preference on the body. I also see it in those who sort of detach themselves from the outcomes of the institution. So there are those who sort of remain institutionally engaged and just say, I'm going to do whatever I can with my power to get my way. There are others who say, well, this place is so dysfunctional that I'm going to check out and we'll let Rome burn. Well, you know, I don't think I want Congress to burn and I certainly don't want the church to burn. And that sort of policy of detachment and withdrawal isn't acceptable in either case, in my view. You served in the Obama White House no drama, Obama. <laughs> there seem to be a lot of whatever anybody thinks of President Obama and his policies. There did seem to be a lot of discipline in terms of people being on the same page. What did you see there that's different from this and different from those situations in the church where leadership just doesn't seem to be able to get things under control? So it's harder to be the opposition party. That's one thing. The party caucus in the House is going to have a much easier time of being disciplined with White House leadership, and Republicans lack that. I mean, I think this is of a different scale, of course. But remember, there was a time when you had the squad and the progressive caucus more generally sort of holding up establishment Democrats' plans when Trump was in office and even during the latter years of the Obama administration. And so a lack of discipline is not completely out of the ordinary. I do think the particularities of this case really exemplify the problem of politics as entertainment. Mm -hmm. The sort of self-sustaining congressman gets literally fundraising as he's speaking on the floor about yeah. really kind of disingenuous sort of pseudo-principled claims. It's very hard to have party discipline in an environment where folks can fundraise off of being mavericks and 
can set up their own sort of packs and institutions that are personality driven. And that's what McCarthy had to deal with. That's honestly what Boehner had to deal with. And whoever is the next speaker is going to have to deal with that as well. Mike, when you have been involved for many years of your life in church planting movements, and of course, in those, you're dealing with institutions that don't already exist. So you don't have sort of those existing power structure. That reality isn't there. It's building something new. How do church planting movements or new churches avoid this kind of scenario where there's just complete gridlock? It's funny because what I think you see in the dysfunction inside Congress right now actually mirrors the things about church planting that are dangerous and problematic, Mm. which is weak institutions, weak attachment to institutions, and most of all, institutions that have no means of holding their members accountable when they do something badly. I remember literally sitting in multiple workshops for multiple denominations. Like I'd be at a church planting boot camp or conference or whatever, and you'd go to a workshop and they'd basically tell you, here's how to get money out of your denomination with as little attachment, promises made, strings attached, control, et cetera, you know, whatever. And then there were certain denominations where they would just say, yeah, I mean, you're just kind of hosed. They're really rigid on that stuff. And I mean, the suggestion literally would always be, you probably just want to get out of that. You really don't need them. You can get money from other places. I don't care what your convictions are about, Mm. you know, ecclesiology or whatever. And so what it seems to me, I mean, you know, Jonah Goldberg has talked about this constantly for the last number of years is that the problem with the parties is that the parties don't actually have the power to gatekeep their primaries. Right. And as a result, the primary ends up getting the most extreme candidates and you're incentivized then if that's how you got in there. You know, if you're a Matt Gates and you got in there by being a flamethrower, you are incentivized to be a flamethrower for your career. There's literally no incentive for him to become a party man and institutionalist at this moment, at this point. You know, McCarthy, for all of his faults, I mean, it's one of the things you hear people talking about is is that he had a skill for strategizing how to deal with this kind of every wildflower bloom thing inside of the GOP. But it, clearly it had a shelf life. And now you're looking at a situation where literally everybody else is looking at it going either I don't want the job or the job is unmanageable. I mean, it seems like that must have been what happened with Scalise is – he said, I'll take it this far. And then when it became clear people weren't going to get on board, he was like, I'm not that crazy. I don't want this for my life, and yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away. Yeah, and, and I see that happening in ministry too. And, and that's why when uh, you mentioned Jonah Goldberg, when he talks about the problem of small donors, and he got a lot of blowback for this, but he's not backing down. He said the small donor problem is an issue. And a lot of people heard that as, well, you're saying that people without a lot of money shouldn't have influence as opposed to people who do. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if what you're doing is trying to get $5 hits immediately, you're going to hit those dopamine centers differently than if you're recruiting people to be a part of an ongoing movement Mm. or institution. So there's a big difference between a church that is saying, we've got a mission together and we've got a future, so let's see what that is and let's give to it, 
and a TV evangelist who just wants to get immediately desperate people who think that by giving some money, they're going to be healed. I mean, it's, it's almost exactly the same dynamic because in that second dynamic, you have to get more and more and more extreme in order to get attention. And it works at least short term. Everybody in the country who's paying a little bit of attention at all to national news knows who Matt Gates is. And it's not because of his legislative accomplishment. There's hardly any of that. And so instead, it's because of this extreme sort of rhetoric. And Michael, I wanted to ask you what Dallas Willard would think of all of this. We were together earlier this week, and you were talking about Dallas Willard. And it seems to me there's something about not just institutional formation, but personal character formation that's involved in at least a lot of this. I mean, there's so much to be said. I mean, for one, Dallas talked about playing for an audience of one, and he wasn't talking about small donors. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and so, and so, you know, that's that's one tie-in. And then I do think there is this to go back a bit to my earlier comments. It is this: like, what are they there for? And are they there to win an argument by any means necessary? Or are they there to serve? This is maybe uh, giving an early preview of a, of a chapter, but, but Dallas has this book, The Allure of Gentleness, which is his book on Christian apologetics. And I just take that book as how Christians should be in public. And in that book, he's just very clear that Christian apologetics is not about winning an argument, not about merely shutting down your opponent. If you're not engaged in apologetics, which is really, you know, evangelism in the public square persuasion as an act of loving service, Mm -hmm. then you're not there for Christian reasons. And I think that there's a very like similar analog when you look to Christians in public generally. And, And obviously there's a without reference to Christianity, they're called public servants for a reason, though we've seen from recent Pew data, the American public's expectations that politicians are going to politics and running for office out of pursuit of public service as opposed to self-interest, that's plummeting. Sky-high percentages of Americans just assume that elected officials are in it for themselves, and that makes it very difficult to have a representative democracy if, (laughs) if the folks representing people are assumed by their constituencies to not even be interested in serving them. And that has implications for life or death here, literally. I mean, we have aid to Israel that cannot happen in order to fight back against Hamas from the floor. We have issues of aid to Ukraine, a country that's potentially being just completely overrun by Vladimir Putin. Can't happen. You have China looking on and making comments along the lines of, see, we told you democracy doesn't work. Instead, an authoritarian, totalitarian strongman, that's what you need. People will live or die on the basis of this dysfunction. Yeah. And if I could just make like a practical political point, Mike referenced gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And obviously, to a certain extent, that's true. But I'm no 
blind fan of the Democratic congressional committees. I've been very critical of the way that Democratic groups have played in Republican primaries to prop up right-wing primary opponents because they thought they were easier to beat. But when it comes to the Democratic primaries, unlike what we've seen on the House Republican side, Democrats have been investing against more extreme members. They've been investing in members that will enable discipline. And we haven't seen that in a while from Republicans. There seems to be this idea that we'll accept members so long as no matter their point of view, no matter their associations, because it'll help us get a majority. And that's true until they're not willing to vote for a speaker and they put your majority at risk. And then you're in a real, you're in a real political bind. Yeah, Speaker McCarthy called uh, the group the Crazy Eights yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just before we went on the air. That's exactly right. You know, I keep thinking about several years ago, Jamie Smith had an editorial in Comment Magazine where he talked about – it was around the time that Tom Nichols' book about the death of expertise came mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And there's a great interview between the two of them in that issue as well where they get into some of the same stuff. But what he talked about in this editorial is he said, you know, we learned to distrust politicians – And to think they're all crooks. And so then we started looking for people, essentially, who would show up on TV and say, all those politicians are crooks. Vote for me and I'll go in there and clean house. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we lost is is that we lost respect for the expertise of doing politics. And this is what he talked about that I thought was so interesting is to think of politics as a skill, as a set of skills. You need people, and obviously there are still a number of them, I mean, people who've been there for a very long time, who've been around, they know how to write legislation, they know how to get things done, they know how to sort of keep the media storm out of contentious issues when they where they can. But those are becoming fewer and fewer and, and further between. And yeah, well, and one of those are is Patrick old. McHenry, <laughs> right? Well, and right. they're old. They're yeah. old. And you know, and we've talked about this on the bulletin. Like, why are people like Mitch McConnell clinging for you know for mm-hmm. dear life to his role, or or Nancy Pelosi, or Joe Biden? And you have to wonder to some extent. Maybe there's a case to be made for somebody needs to know how to turn the lights on and off around here, and the next generation coming up doesn't seem too interested in in learning the location of the light switches. Mike, I, I think the point is such a good one. And I think right alongside your point is, I think this desire that I think is often misplaced for an idea of authenticity among our politicians that turned into like a resentment for talking points or resentment for politicians who are on message. But I think one thing that we've seen over the you know recent period is the danger of politicians that don't use talking points, mm-hmm. who do not have a consistent message, who will say things like, Hezbollah is really smart in a really troubling and complex time. And so, you know, I think I think you're right. There is probably a middle ground there. There probably shouldn't defer to politicians and, and sort of technocratic expertise all of the time. But I do think we have learned a bit that we also don't want politicians shooting from the hip in moments of crisis. You know, in this country, you can say to a, a child, any any one of you could grow up to be president. I think we might be able to say any one of us could be voted on as Speaker of the House sometime next week because <laughs> we're, we're about to get down to the last American who's willing to do it. We'll see who that is. We're very close to electing Speaker via reality show, and, and that'll just We'll just well, come we've full done it before. politics as entertainment. <laughs> Michael Ware, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. We'll be right back.
Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back for an exciting session as we talk about parents and media surveillance. We are joined by our special guest, Sissy Goff, who is the executive director of Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. She works alongside her counseling assistant slash pet therapist, Lucy the Havanese. Super exciting. Since 1993, she's been helping girls and their parents find confidence in who they are and hope in who God is making them to be. Sissy is a sought-after speaker for parenting events across the country, a featured guest on a variety of media outlets, the best-selling author of 13 books, including her latest, The Worry-Free Parent, Finding the Confidence You Need So Your Kids Can Too. Welcome, Sissy. Thank y'all so much for having me. I'm so honored to get to have this conversation. Oh, so are we. So are we. So there's a lot of media about how parents should monitor the social media activity of their kids, especially in this time of intense violence and warfare. Lots of articles. I mean, we've got one marketing firm that had a study that was released in September that found that 66% of parents report that their children have experienced negative effects of social media, including addiction, yet still 60% of parents chose not to use parental control features because they trust their children. In another study, about 35% of parents mentioned that their kids started using social media before age 7, which is rising to 64% before age 10. We've got numerous articles that talk about the impact of social media, especially during this time, on young people. And a study that I found interesting from the publication of American Public Health Association that talks about how media exposure to mass violence can lead to a cycle of harm of mental health. In fact, one researcher said, and I quote, repeated exposure to news coverage of collective traumas has been linked to poor mental health consequences, such as flashbacks in the immediate aftermath and post-traumatic stress responses and physical health problems over time, even among individuals who do not directly experience the event. So, Sissy, you've been in this space for a while. Before we get into the tactics, can you tell us a little bit about your work with parents and families and how you've seen social media's effect on children? Yes. So as you mentioned, I've been counseling kids and families for 30 years, and I'm so grateful for the longevity of doing this work because there have been so many shifts. And as you all are saying, I mean, I think just what technology brings, social media certainly, and we know it is one of the biggest contributors to depression on the rise among kids of all ages and anxiety. You know, with anxiety, we're now looking at one in four children 
one in three adolescents, girls are twice as likely as boys. Interestingly enough, boys are taken in to get help more, which I think is fascinating. But I would certainly say that social media and just technology in general has compounded those effects. And as you're Mm -hmm. discussing, I think there's so many different factors of that. But the secondary trauma that we're talking about right now that kids are witnessing through that is causing kids who are more depressed, more susceptible to mental illness already. Kids who are anxious are struggling that much more. And so I think it is our duty as adults who love kids to protect them, to be vigilant on their behalf. And I I wonder, what do you think are the effects of not just general exposure to social media, but exposure to mass violence? You know, children, I mean, obviously their brains aren't finished developing. They don't have a great understanding of what's possible. And I think of what their own individual experiences in a lot of ways. And so witnessing something through a phone, I mean, they just don't understand the impact of that. And I think the impact on their own emotions. And so kids don't have any ability, like hopefully we do, to turn it off, to monitor our own use of that. And so there is exposure on exposure on exposure for them. And they developmentally think they're the center of the universe. And so, again, there just is not an understanding of the impact that it has for them. And I think if we're not watching they don't know how to remove themselves from those situations. And I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and was working very closely with the Covenant School during the shooting last March. And even watching that and what kids were exposed to, it was the kids who were already struggling that are continuing to struggle the most. And a lot of that was their own fear. A lot of it was what they witnessed and heard, sometimes through us and through our own devices. Russell and Mike, you've both kind of been in this space of engaging in current events and understanding the nuances of the violence that's happening in our world. How have you managed to talk to your kids or kids in your community about what's happening without overburdening them? Is there a balance? I'm curious about what that looks like for both of you. Well, that was what I wanted to ask Sissy about is (laughs) how does one protect children from the full force of these things without over sheltering them mm. to, to the point that they have kind of a, an unrealistically rosy picture of reality that will one day come crashing down. What's what's the right. path to get to get between those two things? Yes, it's an important path to get between the two things. I love the way you asked that question. And I, I think we want to always be the source with kids on all things, all important things. And so we do need to have the conversation based on their developmental level, based on where they are in terms of their age. And it's interesting because kids have this innate ability that they ask for the information they're ready for. And so we want to start with very short, factual information for them. And we want to do our homework. So we make sure we have the facts right. Or even, I think, tell them a little bit and then say, now tell me what you've heard. What are kids talking about at school? Or what have you heard us even talking about? And what questions do you have? And then we give more short, age-appropriate information. But when we let them lead the conversation that way, we're speaking more to where they are developmentally and what their needs are, rather than we get anxious about what's going on and feel like we need to have this really great thing to say. And then out of our anxiety, we just end up talking and talking and talking and giving more information than they need. I also wonder... In conversations about parental surveillance, you know, and and monitoring what's happening on your child's device versus removing particular apps, 
at what point is surveillance okay? At what point is it too much? You know, is this part of the developmental cycle? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think surveillance is really important, honestly, throughout development. And we want to be participating in that less and less as they get older. I did a parenting seminar on technology once, which is my least favorite thing to talk about in the world because everyone just looks panicked the whole time. <laughs> and this dad at the end said he had a question during the Q&A. And long story short, he got the microphone and stood up and he started screaming saying that technology was not a child's God-given right. And if your child is on the internet, go home and shut it down. I mean, he was just screaming. (laughs) And then, and he said, driving our son to his high school graduation was the first time we let him get on the internet on his phone. And the first time we let him send a photo from his phone. I know. And my thought was, okay, May of senior year, that's the kind of freedom he had to August of his freshman year in college. And he could do whatever he wanted. And so... I tell parents all the time, you don't want to be the first to let your kids have every technological advancement. You don't want to be the last. And so be the next to last (laughs) where you're kind of in the moderate range. And so I think even in that, we're letting the rope out gradually so that when they mess up, which hopefully happens under our roofs where we can help them work it out, then when they mess up, we pull it back in and then we let it back out. And so I do think surveillance is really important with tools that are monitoring for you so you're not in the power struggle all the time. And we pull back as they get older. Now, that said, Nicole, I certainly think in times like this, if you have a child who simply can't put the brakes on themselves, knowing that they're going to be exposed to things, I think it may be a season where we take the apps off for them because they often can't regulate themselves in all ways, including technology. What about, Sissy, for parents who don't feel confident in knowing what technological avenues are out there? I mean, I I know of parents who have taken away texting from their kids while they were grounded or something, and they'd opened up a Google Doc. And, and that's how they were communicating with one another. Oh, yes. And the, the parents said, how am I supposed to even think about when, you know, just by definition, kids are going to know the options a lot better than their parents do? Yes, that's such a great point. Yes. I mean, I think that's where we want a few experts. And y'all, I, I feel like I'm saying to parents all the time right now, because I've never seen parents as anxious or overwhelmed as I am today. I'm saying to parents a lot, I want you to pick two experts or three experts. And that's all you follow. Don't follow any more than that. And that way you're hearing the latest information. You have what you need on your child's phone. You're not having to do your homework all the time, but they're monitoring. They're letting you know the apps that are really popular, the games that kids are talking about, and they're watching for you because there's no way. I mean, we are always behind the eight ball with kids. I do wonder, so specifically as it relates to what's happening in Israel and what's happening with Hamas, is there any need for regulations on news content? If I'm watching the news and I'm seeing all of these things and my kids are in the room, at what point do I shield them from it? At what point do I let them see it and have a conversation? And this news is highly graphic. Mm. I mean, constant conversations about rape, about children's being beheaded. This feels like a very significant time to ask the question, how do I parent my child in the midst of violent news. And if I could just add to that before you answer it, Sissy, also, how does a parent communicate, this isn't going to happen to you, Mm. most likely, without causing more anxiety for the child about 
his or her own life. So I'll go back to yours, Nicole, first. I mean, I think in terms of the news, I have to watch how much I'm watching it myself, you know, and again, our brains are fully formed. And so I think knowing the nature of what the news is right now, it's probably really wise to really, unless your kids are older adolescents, I just don't think they need to be seeing it. I think we can have conversations about it if we want them to be aware, if we feel like they're hearing about it from other places, certainly we want to be engaging in conversations with them about it. But I think it's the images for kids, especially when we think about kids who are dealing with mental health issues already. I mean, I think about anxiety for kids. So often it's images that get stuck in what I call the one loop roller coaster in their mind when they're anxious. And so we just don't want them exposed to those things. And so having conversations feels different than letting them have access on their device or having the news on. And y'all, I think we've got to be really vigilant about the news for us and where they might walk through the den and be exposed to something. And so I think being aware of that developmentally. And again, you know, I say that about seniors in high school. I think they could watch it with us. We could have conversations. But if you have a senior in high school who's depressed or anxious, I don't know that I would do that. I just think we can't be aware enough knowing that we've got this mental health crisis among kids today. And Russell, to your question, I think that's part of kind of that idea of they're the center of the universe developmentally. And I think we can do things that are very practical with them. Kids are such experiential learners. So holding a globe and spinning the globe and saying, mm. here's where we are. Wow. Here's where this is happening. Mm -hmm. Now, I want you to ask me questions again and keep going back to, again, I just think we end up answering questions they're not asking because we're anticipating what they might be worried about rather mm -hmm. than where they really are. And, and the beautiful thing about them being the center of their own universe is they're going to shift gears within about five seconds. You know, kids come <laughs> up for, we talk a lot about how kids grief even is so different and it's like swimming, you know, their lungs mm -hmm. aren't fully developed yet. So they come up for air more often than we do. And so they're not going to stay in it very long. They're going to move on quickly. Mm -hmm. Related to that. I, I wonder like, is there a tipping point First of all, I think it's amazing. We have someone on the show who's an expert in parenting, and the three of us as hosts are just full of questions. <laughs> like, I've never <laughs> no, seen tell us how to do this. We're like, Please okay, tell me so what to finally. do. <laughs> Y'all are so kind. But I do wonder, is there kind of a tipping point there? Because part of what I've always wrestled with as a parent is I know my kids are going to encounter stuff. I know they're going to hear things, whether it's about like sort of sex ed kind of stuff or current events or controversial things or whatever. Is there some advantage and cards on the table? This has kind of been our philosophy and I'm going, have we made a mistake here? But is there is there an advantage to going, I want to get there first and have the conversation so that they're not hearing it and coming home and going, oh my gosh, did you hear about what's happening in Israel? Like, how do I make sense of this? Without overwhelming them with like, now here's the images, you know, like right. you know, making them watch Anderson Cooper's special or anything <laughs> like that, right? How would you counsel someone saying, I want to make sure they're not taken by surprise or they're not hit by something that, that completely sort of overwhelms their system, if that makes mm. sense? Yes, it does make sense, Mike. And I, I love that that's been your approach. I think that's a really wise approach. And and I think that is, like you said, whether it's sex ed, whether it's a current event that's happening, I think as parents, you want to early on establish yourself as the most trusted source of information about all the things. I mean, you all, 
in this day and time, the number one source that I'm experiencing in my office for kids regarding mental health is TikTok. It's where they're going for all their information. And it is just devastating to me to hear them talk about it because they are coming in with a lot of misinformation. I had a 13-year-old girl who told me she had created a TikTok account to help spread awareness about mental health. And I thought, wow, I wonder what you're saying as a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) Right. And so, yes, I think early on when we know there's a situation going on, we want to say, hey, I want you to hear from me what's going on, and I want you always to feel like you can come to me with any question. I'm never going to be upset with you. There's not any wrong question, and we're going to talk about it. And if it feels awkward, we can turn our backs to each other and have the conversation, but we're going to have the conversation. You know, I keep going back to the Covenant School shooting, but seeing kids that day, that week, the kids in other schools in our community, they found out about it from their phones. A lot of them before the teachers got to them, before their teachers talked to them about it. And it just made me so sad because I think they need grownups who love them having the conversations. And then y'all, and, and obviously I had a book just come out about parental anxiety. So I've been researching this so much, but I think when we're having those conversations, the most important thing we can do really is to watch our own anxiety and Mm -hmm. to watch our presentation of it. That's very well said. So I, I guess my tactic of ask your dad is probably not <laughs> as comprehensive as it needs to be. I, I, I love that I, tactic. I was just hearing yesterday about a biology teacher who was talking about human reproduction and a girl in the class raised her hand and said, well, my parents have never done anything like that because it's against our religion. <laughs> <laughs> so mom and dad did not That's get there great. first. That so is good. perfect. Amazing. Well, Sissy, thank you for all that you've shared with us. I'm excited about your new book. It really does bring a level of conviction because as parents, there's a level of self-awareness we need, even as we help our kids. It reminds me of what they see on the airlines, you know, put on your own mask first before you help others. So thank you for this conversation. And if you'd like more information on Sissy or on her book, you can follow her on social media. She is at Raising Boys and Girls and at Sissy Goff. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me. We'll be back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So Gallup Research recently released a new study looking at the connection between spirituality and well-being. The study is called Faith and Wellness, and it examines the idea that people who are religious have a greater sense of well-being than people don't. Research in the past has indicated that's 
usually the case. This research continued to indicate that, though some of the numbers have changed a little bit in ways that are worth talking about, that are interesting. So Bob Smitana wrote about it for RNS, and he joins Nicole and I now to talk about it. Bob, welcome back to The Bulletin. Glad to be here. All right. So what did they discover about the relationship between religion and wellness? So this is a study. It looks at 10 years of global data around the world. They look at nine parts of life, everything from whether you're optimistic, you have positive experiences, to your civic engagement. And they did a scale. So they asked you a bunch of questions. Did you smile today? Did people Were people nice to you? Did you give them a charity? It's about your experience. So on some things that people who are religious had higher scores, so on whether they had positive experiences or whether they had enough community resources or if they were optimistic. They were the same as non-religious people on issues like whether they thought they were thriving in life. They were lower on issues, just a little bit slightly lower on their physical health and whether they've had negative experiences, which was interesting. I've been closely tracking this idea of flourishing. Harvard has a whole flourishing that's the indices of flourishing. I think there are about six of them. Barna is doing some flourishing in ministry and all of that. And each time what rises to the top is people who are flourishing or have high well-being are people who are engaged in the Bible. So I'm wondering if there's a religion wellness piece, is there also a Bible or spiritual formation piece? In this data, there's probably not data on that. What Mm -hmm. I think there is data from this and from other studies on religious involvement versus Mm -hmm. what you believe, but religious involvement, going to services, for example. People who go to services tend to be better off. So there's a study of atheists. So it turns out that atheists who are intentionally secular have some of the same health benefits that religious people, and that people who are religious and not engaged, or atheists and not engaged, aren't intentional about the way they live, both have worst outcomes. So there's something about intentionality and connection that are involved here. Intentionality matters. If you're not intentional about what you do and you just float, you're not going to flourish as well. There's a related book out now called Fragile Neighborhoods by Seth Kaplan, and it's about place-based community and the importance of actual physical community and people versus the networked way that most of us live in which we know people who are like us, but they may not live near us. So he's really big on religious groups that have this idea of thick community, of having real relationships, of having real engagement. So it's not an evangelistic thing. And in my own work as a reporter, I don't necessarily write much about evangelism, but I would say that Kaplan is a real, I would say, an enthusiast to say that the way we that people do religion now, which is a little bit more consumeristic, you come for a sermon, you come for stuff you like, what you can get is not leaning into the best parts of religion, which is being intentional and connected with people and having rituals and a grounding that gives you life or flourishing. So there's probably some relationships to his work and this study and that kind of connectedness and intentionality matter. And that could be something that religious communities can offer that's different. That's countercultural in a way that we don't think of countercultural. People think of countercultural, they think about what you believe or some of your ethics, they don't think about your practices. I think it's a fascinating thing to think about how you have this whole sort of psychology of happiness thing that's on the rise, and there's all this evidence around the importance of religion and psychology of happiness. You have all this evidence of these things that bring flourishing, religious commitments or religious practices and all the rest of it. And yet, religion on the whole does seem to be steadily in decline. It's like you read this stuff and it feels like you're 
science is yelling at people to eat, take their religious broccoli. It's good for <laughs> you guys, I promise. This study had two interesting pieces of information. One was that they think that the decline of religion is or not religious people don't like religious people, so they don't really want to care. Mm-hmm. Or is it that religious people, especially when they're a larger portion of the population, make it so unpleasant for non-religious people that mm-hmm. they don't care? So they're both sort of things can be going on. There's a, another really interesting book called We of Little Faith. It's by a woman who's an atheist named Kate Cohen. But she is an enthusiastic for churches and meaning-making and joining because that kind of human flourishing stuff matters to her. She just wrote this great column in the Washington Post called You Should Go to Church or something like it. Basically, you need to go to spaces <laughs> and be with people where you belong to something bigger than yourself that you're in a space that makes meaning together, which is one of the things that Christianity and other religions teach, that you're not part of yourself. You're not alone, that you're engaged with other people. And that kind of religion is a little bit lost. If you want to get the right beliefs or join our right group, you're okay. But the fact that you might be obligated to be part of a larger community is lost often. Are there takeaways in terms of You look at the sort of meaning-making practices and the things that actually work to form community. First of all, I think this is a really meaningful conversation given the fact that even the CDC is reporting this epidemic of loneliness, and we're seeing it across generations. It's not just young people are lonely, but older people are lonely too. And then you couple that with the entrance of AI that assumes relational connection, assumes even technology can quote-unquote get to know you. When you consider all these things, one study that I saw recently about AI and the church in particular said that pastors are more concerned with what happens from the pulpit and what they convey to the congregation. And less concerned about the interaction that takes place amongst the congregation and between memberships. So I think this conversation says, because of technology, because of loneliness, because of isolation, do what you can to encourage relationships in your congregation. It struck me how much I've seen younger folks flock to things like tabletop games. My kids are playing board games. Why? Because they get together, they do it face to face. It's the kind of relationship building stuff. I think we have forgotten like the importance of friendship and relationships. Mm-hmm. So Jesus wants to change the world. What does he do? He makes 12 friends and mm-hmm. they make a bunch of friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they start forming communities. And then Paul writes a bunch of letters, which I, we look at them as just doctrinal things. No, this is like a manual of like, how do you form congregations and how do you mm. get people to work together? And what happens when something comes up? And it's like a how-to manual yeah. of how to create a new kind of community. And we don't think about that enough. And so like old-fashioned church with old-fashioned potlucks and all those kind of things and coffee hours. Mm. And they're not the only thing, but they're the ways for people to actually know each other so that the relationship is not just with the pastor. Because as people, congregations got bigger and bigger, they've tried to be efficient, so they're very thin. Mm-hmm, and they don't, have, mm-hmm. they don't have any connective tissue to each other. So something bad goes wrong, there's nothing to hold them together. They're like a big house yeah. of cards. Religious people have all these tools to use. Social media is awesome, but what it doesn't do is make us social. Yeah, it that's ironic. Angry, right? But it doesn't <laughs> yeah. make it social in any way. Yeah. And, and what it does is it drives you into a silo full of people who agree with you. Yes, for the most part, and are going to applaud you. Whereas in church, like ideally, you're sitting next to people who see the world differently than you in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. and you have to learn to talk civil just because you have to get through an hour and a half on Sunday 
sitting next to him. But you also do things together that make you yeah. community, even though they're, yeah. they sound like ritual. You do them and they give you meaning and things that bind you together. What I love about it is particularly in, in the sense that the deeper you press in on, on the three, it's hard to separate them. What's great about this idea of the church foundationally being a place where we build these relationships, where we have friendships, where we belong or whatever, is that number one, it's a very ungrandiose way to think about the church. Mm-hmm. Like rather than the church being the mission that's going to go save the world and that has this big platform driven kind of thing. The healthiest churches, even examples of, I've seen some very healthy, very large churches. But when you get inside the church and see what's going on, yeah, they love their pastor. They like the big Sunday show. They like the rest of it. But when you get into like, why are you here? Oh, I'm here because this guy did our marriage counseling 20 years ago, and we've Mm. been in his Sunday school class for the last 30 years. And you, you see that again and again. And it is this sort of basic building block of community that in the end of the day, I don't know that you can program for it. I remember talking to somebody a few months back about a thing that was going on at their church. And I was like, so how do you know these people? Is this like a community group structure that you guys all get together with or whatever? And they go, no, it's embarrassing. But we all started getting together because we were really into Settlers of Catan. So we, <laughs> so we were doing these Settlers nights on Sunday nights. And then we just started doing it at the house. And we've been doing it for 10 years now. And wow. I'm like, that's great. Take the pressure off and let people meet. And guess what? When they're sitting there doing Settlers of Catan, one of those nights, they're going to be setting up the board and going, y'all, you got to pray for our marriage because we're in real trouble here and things are going to happen. It's the intentional part. In writing about communities, I actually looked at the Sunday Assembly, which is the atheist church people, but they, Mm -hmm. one of their organizers talked about an event they'd had and how they had a great time at this event and that it wouldn't have happened unless somebody said, oh no, we have to get people together. We have mm. to do this. There has to be an intentionality about it. And I think in my mm. own life, I've got a bunch of college friends. Yeah. We started getting together for dinner when we were 20-year-olds. Now we're almost 60. So we've got 40 years of friendship that was built. But we had one person who made sure we had a set mm. time. And mm-hmm. we started back when we were doing phone trees, right? But like, it's not exciting. But the Bible is not yeah. a ex- super exciting book in terms of strategy. <laughs> There's a big moments, yeah. right? But we tend yeah. to think about the big moments like Pentecost. All oh, these people. Mm. But most of it is like slow, steady, one person. Met, I met mm. this person, and these two guys were fishing. And we started a revolution because two guys mm-hmm. were fishing, and they became friends. And it's a very slow, steady process of intentionality, though. We have this kind of consumeristic, I want a fast, easy app thing. Because that's mm-hmm. the way the culture does things. We have life yeah. hacks, and there's no life hack for life. Mm. It's just life, and you have to do it. Very and well. a lot of the studies show this, that you join people. And it's a messy as heck. You've learned how to... Mm. A committee meeting is the worst thing. <laughs> but at the end of the committee meeting, you probably all go out and have some dinner, and mm-hmm. you talk to each other. But you have learned how to civilly work through difference, and you're committed to one another. Nobody loves their spouse the way they did on their marriage day every single day. They still love yeah. them, but the love... The intensity of belief, Mm -hmm. the intensity of belonging waver, but the practice keeps you there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the lesson of the religion reporter. Love it. No, that's great. Well, Bob, it was great to have you join us for this conversation. Thanks so much. Nicole, thank you once again. Good to see you. Always. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week. 
The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.